You're listening to the Sioux Falls Startup Stories Podcast. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of Sioux Falls Startup Stories. Before we uh, get into it today, a quick thank you to Startup Sioux Falls, our sponsors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be a possibility, so thank you to them. But jumping right in today, I am sharing the story of... My name is Mitch Jackson, and my business is uh, Queen City Bakery that my wife and I own and operate. Yes, Mitch Jackson of Queen City Bakery. If you're a person in business, if you've set up a coffee meeting somewhere downtown, if you have attended any number of things, you've at least heard of Queen City Bakery. If you've never been inside, it is a beautiful venue. You absolutely have to check it out. But for me, outside of seeing this friendly face make and serve coffee from behind the counter, I've never really had the opportunity to get to know Mitch or understand the story of how this, what's become this kind of iconic staple business in our downtown community really came into being. But to really understand how Mitch and his wife came to start Queen City Bakery, we need to know a little bit about where he comes from. All right, two minutes. Uh, born and raised in Sioux Falls. My family also um, owns a business here that my great-great-grandfather started in 1910 called Hegel's West. It's a Western store on 41st and Qantas, which my little brother now owns, and he is fourth generation to own it. So I grew up here in Sioux Falls, uh, graduated from Lincoln High School, left, went to St. Cloud State, was going to be a teacher, ended up hating my professors, and went to school for art instead. So by trade, I do ceramics. Um, After finishing school, I came back here and worked for my father at the Western store for, you know, maybe two months. And could relate to the business aspect, but couldn't relate to the customers. I've never owned horses. I am not an urban cowboy. And I uh, had an opportunity to move to Europe to teach. So I moved to France. While I was in France, I met a woman who's from Rapid City, who's now my wife. And we moved back from Europe, um, lived in Rapid City for just maybe six or seven months. And uh, bought one-way tickets to New York City. So we moved to New York City. That's how we got into the baking game. My wife um, was walking by a bakery in the West Village in Manhattan and said, oh, this is cute, and started off by serving coffee and and serving the cake and working front of house, but had a natural ability and a desire to learn how to bake and how to decorate. She ended up taking over that kitchen and then got offered a spot in Brooklyn at another place that had just been open maybe four months and uh, just really took off from there. So very well known in the pastry world, uh, baking world in New York. I was doing business management in the financial district for a small business, kind of like the great outdoor store here, but times 100. I was doing uh, business management and buying, you know, roughly doing about 20 million a quarter that I was in charge of and uh, really got tired of that. I knew that at some point we were gonna open up our own business. I knew that it was gonna be a bakery because I was gonna ride my wife's coattails as as long as I could, but I didn't understand anything about the baking business. So I um, went to the bakery and did their business management so that I could understand how to work a bakery specific business. Okay, so a little bit longer than two minutes. 
One thing I certainly learned about Mitch is he is a fantastic conversationalist, which makes sense. He runs a coffee and bakery shop. You have to be able to talk to people over coffee. But this wasn't necessarily his plan, especially after graduating high school. He went on to get a degree in teaching. Well, I worked with kids for a long time. I worked at Leif Erickson TP Tonkin Day Camp here for a lot of years and um, just really liked being with kids. It was just, I, I'm kind of a big kid myself. So playing games and then if you can add teaching into that, you know, why not? So St. Cloud State at one time was known as St. Cloud Teacher School. And so my idea was to go up there to be a teacher so that I can continue with working with children. Um, but I just had some real bad experiences with some professors up there who were very high up in the department. And, and my, my thought, and granted it was my second year, you know, but my thought was, gosh, if, if these guys are high up in the department, I'm just going to get real frustrated the next couple of years. And I didn't like, there was one specific professor who really turned me off to the program in that he, he basically just said the whole time we would never be as good of a teacher as he was. And, you know, it's just that's not the way that I operate. I'm never going to put anybody down or say, that they're, you know, so that's what really turned me off. Um, to teaching, but I think what I like is, and why I moved into art and ceramics specifically, and I'm a terrible painter, I'm a terrible, I can't draw to save my life. I really like art, art history, um, but ceramics is something that you will never master. I mean, you can, like there's definite like master, you know, potters in the world that have been doing it for 75 years and are incredible. But there's still a day where you just sit down and everything just turns to crap. You know what I mean? Which that's what I like about it is that there's so much to learn. It's such a natural material and it's very tactile and it's very calming. And it's, you know, you have direct, you know, influence on what's happening. So you move just a tiny bit and the whole thing changes. So I really like that aspect of it that I felt like this is something that I would never master and I would continue to work at it forever, which I mean... I haven't exactly done that. Here I am owning a bakery, but I did um, I did teach in New York at a private studio. I had 20 students that would come, and that was lovely. And that's something that I've liked to get back into. Now that the business has slowed down a little bit for us personally after 11 and a half years that now I'm finding, and my kids are older too, that now I'm finding I can have a little bit of time to maybe go back into some hobbies and things like that. But teaching was just, a, it was a, a way to continue to work with children at a level that is not the pay of a camp counselor. Slightly higher, not much higher in this state, but slightly higher than a counselor. Well, when Mitch mentions that he was teaching pottery at a studio in New York, I couldn't help but think that he could have played the main character in the 1990s movie Ghost. That scene where Patrick Swayze is with his wife or, I don't know, his girlfriend, and they're romanticizing over pottery together, that almost prompted me to go watch the movie. Almost. But I find it really interesting, however, that Mitch was going to become a teacher slash camp counselor. I mean, he grew up in the entrepreneurial world. His family owned a business. He watched his parents run a business. Owning a business was really what he had been exposed to for most of his life. Yeah, my great-great-grandfather, Charlie Hegel, opened Hegel's West. Actually, it was called Hegel's Saddle Shop. It was downtown 
I believe it was where Spa 2000 is now. And he was there. He opened in 1910. And he repaired saddles and harnesses and things like that for horse teams. And they opened a second location at 41st and Qantas where they are currently, I think it was in the 70s or 80s. And that's why it's called Hagel's West because it was their West location. And then traffic ended up being far greater as development went to the West on 41st Street that they closed the one downtown and just moved it out to and kept the, the single store at 41st and Qantas. So my youngest brother is now the owner of the store, which he purchased from my father, I think about two years ago. So he's fourth generation. So it's always gone down. It was before um, my brother, it was my parents. Before my parents, it was my my mom's mom and dad. And then before them, it was Charlie Hegel. So it was her, my grandparents' grandparents. What a rich and fantastic history that Mitch's family has in our community. For one, I had no idea that that Western-style store over on 41st and Kiwanis was a family-owned business for literally generations. And for two, I had no idea that this humble coffee and bakery shop owner had any part of it. I think any time that you are, like, growing up, you have to shun somewhat of what your parents had done. You know what I mean? It's never You're never going to be the same as your parents. You're going to change. You're going to do whatever. Um and I'd always, like I said, I'd always like working with kids and I, me being just a big kid myself, that was a, a natural route for me. From a Western retail store background to teaching kids, where does a bakery fit into all of this? Yeah, here I am owning a business and it was all, I mean, it's everything about it was a fluke. I had moved to France to teach, to work with kids in that situation where I ended up meeting this woman who ended up being very gifted in the food world. And she didn't grow up, Christine, my wife, didn't grow up necessarily in the kitchen. Her mom was born in Ecuador. So her mom, being Latina, was always in the kitchen. It wasn't really Christine's place. We moved back from Europe, and um, there was a restaurant in Rapid City called The Corn Exchange. And the chef owner was MJ Adams, and she went to French Culinary Institute in New York, was a chef in Manhattan for 10 years and moved back to open up this incredible restaurant in Rapid City that was, I mean, hands down the best restaurant in the state. No offense to Ken and, you know, Stacy and, you know, all the people here in Sioux Falls. But it was it's incredible, which she's now been closed, I think, probably four or five years. But when we came back from France, Christine said, well, I'm going to work at this restaurant because it's basically New York prices, and I'm going to be a server, and I'm going to make good tips so that we can make some money. And MJ said, you know, I don't need anybody out front. I can use somebody in the kitchen. And Christine said, hold up. I just want you to know, kitchen's not my place. You know, I've not done anything in the kitchen. I've, it's not, you know, a skill that I possess. And she said, I'll teach you. And so she taught her how to um, make salads and mise en place, which means to set everything out, you know, for desserts and stuff like that. And MJ is the one who said, you know, I think you guys should move to New York. There's a lot to offer you. You're young, you know, give it a shot. And so that's what we did. We were young and irresponsible. And so let's buy a one-way ticket to New York. Ah, uh, yes. It all started with a woman. But all of these pieces of the story really plays into what started and ultimately shaped what Queen City Bakery is today. So that's how she became into the, she came into the food world. It was just through MJ and through that, um, 
you know, kind of mentorship and somebody who we really look up to and, and we're still friends with, even though she doesn't have a restaurant anymore. She has a food show, I think, on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and but just a great, great person who's very, very skilled at what they do, but also nurturing if she sees talent in somebody and says, this might be a, a route for you. So I think the only way that I'm in, the only reason that I'm in business is because of Christine's ability. Well, Mitch and his wife are world travelers. They met each other abroad, they moved back to their roots in South Dakota, but ultimately found themselves living what I would call the TV life in New York City. So what prompted them to make the decision to give all of that up? I think what's, I mean, from the business standpoint, so we um, live in New York, there's definite, it's, it's not necessarily the haves versus the have-nots, but, and we weren't living paycheck to paycheck. But, I mean, we certainly didn't have a bunch of extra funds to do whatever we wanted. I mean, if we needed something, we could go buy it. That wasn't an issue. But we also didn't have children. We didn't have a house payment, you know, I mean, which comparatively rent out there when we arrived was way more than our mortgage was here. But um, I think we just got tired of it. And we wanted to think about starting a family and we wanted to start a business. And that was unobtainable to us in New York. Like I said, she was very successful. Um, I was doing just fine doing business stuff. And it's not that we weren't happy. It's just that we wanted something more and that more couldn't be gotten in our location. So we looked at three. I think we knew based on Christine's area of expertise that we were going to open a bakery. I learned how to make coffee and all that stuff in New York, which I had never done before. And, um, I kind of have a head for numbers and things like that. So we looked at three locations to open a business back here closer to family. So we looked at Sioux Falls, Rapid City, and Minneapolis. Rapid City doesn't have the economy to support a business like ours every day. Not that we're expensive by any means, but it's not a place where people are going to come every single day necessarily and certainly um with the hills surrounding it, I think the tourist season, a lot of that economic impact is driven out into the hills instead of, I mean, Rapid City certainly sees a bump for sure, but people aren't driving West River to stay in Rapid City. They're going West River to go to the hills. So the Rapid City was out, which was where her mom and dad lived. Um, so that was out. Minneapolis were both pretty big city people. Christine went to the U of M lived in Minneapolis for a while. Um, she lived in Quito, Ecuador. She lived in Barcelona. She's traveled extensively throughout the world. Also, I mean, both of us working in France, we were in Paris every other weekend, spending time up there. And we both really liked the big city and New York, I mean, obviously. But Minneapolis has some really, really, really good food places up there. Really good. And it's so interstate divided that you're not necessarily going to drive 20 minutes further for something that's a little bit better when what you have in your neighborhood is really good. Uh, then we looked at here, and I looked at economic data for Sioux Falls. And the year before we moved back in 2007, uh, between Sanford and Avera, $1.2 billion had been pledged to kick back into the community for their healthcare campuses. So that alone, that influx of cash, plus Sioux Falls being a bizarre economic bubble. You know, the highs aren't as high, but there really aren't any lows. And it's a, it's a 
just a bizarre it's 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 a weird amount of wealth that's here because there's both old money and there's new money from all the physicians that are moving in and our thought process was people want to be metropolitan but they don't want the cost of living well here we've got three and a half hours to Minneapolis, two and a half hours to Omaha. And if we can give them that metropolitan feeling by offering the products the same things that we would have done in New York and do it to the same standard and quality, that we should be successful here. Remember that part when Mitch says he's got a head for numbers? That's an understatement. This guy is calculated beyond measure. He knows numbers and he knows where to get them and he knows how to use them. It's time for that mid-roll ad. Are you on Facebook? Have you used the internet lately? Have you checked out the Startup Sioux Falls Facebook group or their website? There is a ton of resources, network opportunities, events, and so much more. Like this very podcast. Startup Sioux Falls is a sponsor of this podcast and the sponsor of a lot of other great content to help entrepreneurs and business people. You can check out their website and sign up for their email list, subscribe to notifications, all through their website at SiouxFalls.eco. That is SiouxFalls.eco. And if you haven't done so yet, check out Startup Sioux Falls on Facebook. There's a group of over 6,000 members. It's a place to ask questions about business, meet new people, network, and learn about upcoming events, some of which are hosted by Startup Sioux Falls itself. This is one of the best resources in the Sioux Falls area for entrepreneurs. Check them out and definitely tell your friends. In 2007, Mitch and his wife made the decision to move back to Sioux Falls to bring this bakery concept to life. So we sat down and and my wife is a very hard worker and I am not a very hard worker. I am, I, I would, you know, screw around all the time, but she is very um, structured She's very um, regimented in what she does, and that's why she insisted on having a meeting every morning. So we would lay out our agenda for the day. Aside from meeting with vendors and things like that to find, because we had to source everything from boxes to plates to, you know, we had to finalize our logo. Our our graphic designer, who we just got an email from a couple days ago, and we haven't heard from him in 12 years, um, he was in New York, and he was a customer at the bakery, and was, I mean, he did our logo for us, I think for like 1500 bucks or $2,000 when at that time, and I'm sure it's increased now, but the, the price for branding, logo, things like that starts for, for businesses with a revenue under a million dollars starts right around $10,000. So he did it for us as a favor. And he, we said, here's our name. This is what we got. Um, and that was it. And he worked with us for quite a while. And then we would just mail him checks as we had funds coming in. So um, we got a logo. We started to source all of our stuff. I sat down with a blank computer screen and just started cranking out a business plan with what our idea was. Broke down cost of goods, which is really a pain in the butt when you're producing all your stuff because it's Price per gram of flour, price per gram of sugar, price per gram of butter. How much does an egg cost? What's our yield total for recipes? So we had to make all of our products first and then cost them out when we would figure out what our servings were. Remember that head for numbers thing? Yeah. But Mitch puts all of this into a very calculated business plan. I have a pretty hard time believing him when he says he's not a hard worker. 
cost of goods and business plans is not my love language in business. But the diligence and the hard work and wearing pants for their morning meeting, it all really pays off. So it was a lot of work, but that's all we did. We left New York to come here to start a business, and we were going to start a business. We lived at my parents' house, which was difficult, but it allowed us to have zero expenses and to have all the time that we needed. So we would wake up and we would start working, and that's what we did five, oftentimes six days a week. And I think that's why we were able to come to fruition so quickly from November 1st to funding, you know, it's President's Weekend in February. So to, to get everything laid out from just the name to funding and starting build out, that's why it went so quick was because of her um, insistence that this is what we're going to do. And it, and it made sense. And, you know, it's not like I fought her tooth and nail, but she definitely took the lead on that structure and getting it done. But we also have a wonderfully symbiotic relationship because she does everything in the kitchen, recipes, um, ingredient ordering, forecasting, sales, whatever she thinks, whatever she does in the kitchen that I don't understand. I've certainly learned how to bake because when we opened, it was just the two of us. But I don't understand how she keeps everything straight or what she makes when she makes it or why she makes it on this day, and which is great. And she would rather stay behind the scenes whereas I am definitely out front people person, and then I do all the numbers. So I do taxes, payroll, bookkeeping, all the gross business stuff and big ideas and work up front and do the coffee. So it's, you know, we joke back and forth all the time. We just had this joke, you know, yesterday that, you know, I tell her, I'm like, without me, you wouldn't have a business because nobody would come in here just for a scone. And she's like, well, without me, nobody's going to come in just to talk to you. So it's a great symbiotic relationship and that's really I think what it takes that we're fortunate that we both have a, a specific skill set that panders to the other one to create the business. As Mitch and his wife were choosing a location, a city to set up shop, I couldn't help but wonder if he was worried at all that they would make the wrong decision, that maybe this concept, this idea ultimately wasn't going to work in the location that they chose. So I'm very much a data-driven person where I look at numbers and you can, you know, you can go through the SBDC, the Small Business Development Corporation, you can go through the SBA, and but you can also find tons of data online. So you can look at based on sales tax collecting in specific categories, bakery specific, in our case, what the revenue was. And it won't say what the businesses are, but it gives you an idea of the type of money being spent. So I found this, this RGI, this Restaurant Growth Index for Sioux Falls the year before we moved back. And the amount of money that people were spending per capita eating out was huge. And a lot of that, don't get me wrong, was Applebee's, TGI Fridays, you know. And I was explaining to somebody yesterday that it wasn't necessarily for us the easiest to go the route that we have, which was to produce every product using the best ingredients possible. Um, so we didn't question it, but we also didn't even put that thought in our head. I mean, we just said, okay, here we go. This is what we're doing. This is our plan. This is what, how we're going to make it happen. And then once we were open, it was a ton of education. 
you know, I remember there was one customer that came in and at the time, I think we were charging $3 for a brownie. And she said, how can you charge $3 for a brownie? I said, ma'am, it just reflects our cost of goods. I'm like, we have to drive to the cities. At the time, we couldn't even get any imported ingredients here. We had to drive to Minneapolis and have an importer bring us chocolate, you know, from France, from Germany, from Switzerland, that they were an importer. And that's where we would have to drive up, pick it up and drive it back. And we're paying, you know, 10 times what anybody else was paying because it's a better quality product. And she's like, I make brownies in my store and I charge 50 cents. And I'm like, well, that's great. But what, like, what kind of chocolate do you use? You know, and it was, you know, this very generic terms and I use this, this, I'm like, well, that's great. I said, you know, but that's not what we use. I said, I'm not offended that you are offended. It's just, this isn't for you. And that's great. Well, this is impressive to me. Mitch is so confident in his ability to analyze and make decisions, but even more, he's so confident in his wife's ability to make the best baked goods in the area and then stand behind the cost that reflects that. I mean, $3 for a brownie with imported chocolate from France, it's certainly not 50 cents, but it also doesn't taste like a 50 cent brownie. There is always this element of consumer education when you're trying to do something just a little bit different from the norm. Whether it's making natural homeopathic remedies and chemical-free bath and body products like my wife and I do at our retail store, shameless plug, or if it's using the finest ingredients imported from all over the world in baked goods, like Mitch and his wife does. Education becomes a key factor into why the products are the best and also why they might cost a bit more than some are used to. But the problem with doing something new is it's harder to educate the financiers. Building a bakery is really expensive. So we went to four banks um, and all of the banks wanted us to have a cosign, which Christine and I have always done everything independent. So when we bought our house, we had no cosign. When we bought our cars, we had no cosign. When we started our business, we had no cosign. We didn't want our venture to be on somebody else's shoulders. And we also needed all of the skin in the game. I think it's very easy if you are from an affluent family and you get you know, this business handed to you to not put the work in. It's very easy to sit on the sidelines and just kind of coast through. And we didn't want, and, and not that we would have done that, but we, that's not our thing. So we went to four different banks and they all wanted us to co-sign or to sign up for the DEDA fund, which is the Downtown Economic Development Incentive incentive fund. So they would take 50% of the note to diversify the risk for the bank. So that way, if we took out $100,000, the bank would only be on the hook for 50 if we defaulted. Um, but we also didn't want to do that. We wanted to have a single note, single payment, single bank. We didn't want to have funds all over the place. And we were actually approached by a, a banker who was a friend of my little brother's who was starting in the banking world. I think he was eager to bring customers in. And we met with the president of the bank and he could have cared less. I mean, we presented like I had on a suit. Christine was dressed up. We had our full business plan with all of our financial projections, everything to show that it would work. And 
he could care less. He was just like twirling his pen the whole time, dropped his pen a couple times, picked it up. And afterwards, I called the gentleman who invited us in and I just said, don't waste my time again. You know, like we're trying to make this work. I understand that you're trying to get your career started in the banking world too. But that was a huge waste of two and a half hours of my time. I said, don't do that again. And he's like, whoa, wait, hold on. Come meet with this other, come meet with the president of commercial lending, not the president of the bank. And he ended up being like the sweetest man, you know, and we had tons of connections with him. So um, his stepson was a camper of mine at Tipe Tonka and his stepdaughter, you know, also went to camp and I knew her and they were also our first two employees, you know, so and he was the best. And so our bank gave us uh, one note lower amount than any other bank had offered us. And yeah, the rest is history. So we also, when we moved locations a little over six years ago, went back and took out another loan for 60, 70, $80,000 to buy more equipment. And we went through that bank again. And getting told no and meeting with disinterested bankers, that can be really discouraging to a lot of entrepreneurs. But to make it in entrepreneurship, you have to be resilient. Like the three guys that founded Remedy Brewing Company, they got over 150 no's when trying to find investment for their business. You can listen to their episode on season two. And just like the guys from Remedy, Mitch didn't let a disinterested banker get him down either. No, we didn't even think about that because no matter what, we had already started buying equipment. So we would go... Restaurant equipment, I don't know if you know, is stupid expensive. I mean, aside from the fancy like espresso machines, which ours is $20,000. But even a refrigerator, like a two-door refrigerator is like $4,000. A three-door refrigerator is $7,000. You know, it's just, it's astronomical in price. So we said that if we can buy that equipment at a discounted rate at auctions or whatever, that we would show frugality to our bank and also show that we were invested in the business because we're already buying for equipment for it, even though we don't have a space. And um, so we went to auctions all over from Minneapolis on down, and we would drive up trailers and buy refrigerators and mixers and, you know, whatever we needed. And we would store it in the basement of my father's store, which is terrible because there's no elevator. It was all stairs and carrying, you know, like a 30 quart commercial mixer that's solid downstairs is not a fun thing to do but we started buying stuff and I don't it never really crossed my mind that it wasn't going to work because we weren't going to move back here to fail that wasn't an option for us we could have stayed in New York for that Um, and we also weren't going to work for somebody else because we could have stayed in New York well after almost 12 years in business he most certainly has not failed and boo on those banks for missing such a great opportunity to fund and help start such a business in our community. What frustrated me was that there were a couple of banks who feigned interest. So I had written a 135 page business plan. And some point along the way, somebody had said that banks really only want to see 100 pages. And I was like, oh, okay. So for two of the banks, I cut it down to like 107 pages. That saved all of our crucial information that saved, you know, all of our numbers and forecasted sales and, and revenue directed, you know, data. And I put it in a binder that is a hundred page binder. 
because I'm not going to buy like 100, like 150 page and have all this extra space. Knowing that, you know, when you three hole punch paper, it's going to tear if it's jammed too full. One of the banks that I took it to just, uh, you know, really didn't, they talked interest, you know, and I will present it to the board and, you know, it was just a junior commercial lender, which is great. But then after two weeks, I called and I said, hey, you know, would you like to discuss anything? And he said, you know, we decided that we're not going to go forward with your project. I said, great, I'm going to come down and pick up my business plan from you. And it had never been opened. You know what I mean? Which is the, the bank people, which and I have great relationships with people from the bank now on a professional level and a personal level. The bank doesn't know what this person was doing. I think that just goes to show you know, to try to be in contact with your staff and employees as much as possible so you know what's happening. But that's that was frustrating to me because there was no there was no follow-up on their part, but that was an individual, that wasn't a, a company policy. But there was never any doubt that it would happen or it wouldn't happen. Because one way or another it was gonna happen. We just that's it was it was gonna do it. We were gonna do it and that was it. Well, I'd be frustrated too if I had a hundred plus page business plan that nobody looked at. But ultimately they got the ball rolling and they got the funding they needed. I'm not a business plan type of guy. There are a lot of big name entrepreneurs that'll say that business plans are a waste of time, they aren't worth it or whatever. And whether you, you subscribe to this mentality or not, it's always good to have a starting point when it comes to sales and general projections. This is what we need to make to be sustainable. This is what we hope to make year over year. This is how we're going to get there, that sort of thing. So how has Mitch's business plan held up over the years? We blew by him. I didn't really understand the level of support. Like I said earlier, how, how people in Sioux Falls really go for new restaurants and they just, I mean, it's bang on, you know, I mean, it's a line out the door and we are not planners in that sense. So I was at our old location at 8th and Weber. I remember it was a Thursday night and I was standing on top of a 12 foot ladder, pulling nails out of the ceiling. And I looked down and my first thought was, if I fell right now, I would die. And Christine wouldn't know what happened until tomorrow morning. And the second thing was, we need to open because we're spending so much money on this build out and we don't have any revenue. So we've spent, you know, $100,000 at that point and there was nothing coming in. I, and I thought to myself, we just got to open. We told two people that we were opening, aside from my parents, who I'm sure my mom told 8 million people, but we really only told two people. And that was Thursday night at 11 o'clock and we opened Saturday morning. So it was a really quick turnaround. I told Christine, got home, and I just said, we need to go in, do prep tomorrow. The counters are being installed tomorrow. We need to be open on Saturday. As luck would have it, at that time in 2008, they were building the shelter for the Falls Farmer's Market. So the Farmer's Market was in the parking lot of Johnstone Supply, just to the north of us. We had our sign out front. That was our first day open, was the first day of the Farmer's Market also. So we opened at the time, we opened at nine o'clock on Saturdays. We were selfish and wanted to open at nine o'clock Sundays and nine o'clock on Saturdays so that we could sleep in a little bit, 
not knowing that we would just go to work at the same time but have a little more time to do prep work. And at 8.15, there was a line of about 30 people out the door. The people just wanted coffee and to see what it was about. And we had no employees. And we were absolutely slammed that first day, and which was great, but also totally overwhelming. We Our sales forecast, and I haven't read through our business plan for probably five or six years, but I know that our business plan, we more than four times shot our business plan. But it's, it's such a tough thing. How do you forecast sales in a market that you've never done business in with a product that's never been offered? It's a, to, it's a total crapshoot. You just throw numbers out there into the wind, I think, as a way to show bankers or your potential funders your hopes or your, your, your ability to make it look like you can make money, right? And then you go beyond that. And I think that people in Sioux Falls are generous when there's a new business. And I think that... Not, not even just food, but just any new business, which is awesome. But for us, it was it was just throwing numbers to the wind. So we did way more business than that, which is great. But now, and we've grown every year, you know, but we always, we don't, I mean, we've tried to pay our, you know, full-time employees a livable wage since we opened. So we don't make any more money. Well, I have gone way too long on this episode, but remember at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that Mitch was a good conversationalist. Well, that's no lie. Mitch is in fact a great conversationalist, but Mitch's background and how it plays into the founding of Queen City Bakery is so crucial to the story. Mitch also shares that he and his wife, Christine, now have two kids since they've opened their kids while barely kindergarten aged have grown up in the bakery, and it's really become a part of who they are. He's really proud of the influence that the bakery has had on their taste buds as well. He told me that for his five-year-old's birthday, they went to a sushi place, and they ate them out of all the fancy plates. (laughs) I gotta say, my five-year-old only eats premium boxed chicken, so kudos, Mitch. I'll have to start introducing some quiche into my kid's food palate. Well, I'm so grateful and thankful for my time with Mitch and getting to know him a little better. I found this story was so fascinating and just rich with history and meaning. I mean, truly, Queen City Bakery has become a core part of the Sioux Falls downtown scene. The, the space is absolutely beautiful. It is located in the Frank Building right across from the Crane Center. It's in the heart of 8th Street. In fact, it's just across the street from the 8th and Railroad Center where our business, Juniper Apothecary, lives. After you've gone and had a coffee and cupcake, come down and see us too. <laughs> Another shameless plug. A final shout out to our sponsors, Startup Sioux Falls. If you want to learn more about their organization, have access to tons of amazing content that uh, is business and entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial related content like this very podcast, you can go check out their website at SiouxFalls.eco. That is SiouxFalls.eco. All right, we will see you all next week.